Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. Columbus, Cleveland, and Cincinnati have developed what are called innovation districts. Cincinnati was the first last year, with Columbus and Cleveland coming on board this year. I'll talk with the architect of the Cincinnati Innovation District in a moment. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend presents segments that include a look at incentives to get the COVID-19 vaccine, an effort to legalize fireworks in Ohio, and an introduction of the incoming police chief for the city of Columbus. And in about 50 minutes, I'll have information about a new drug that's been approved for Alzheimer's disease. I'll talk to the executive director of an organization called Us Against Alzheimer's. First up on Columbus Perspective, joining me from Cincinnati is David Adams, who is the Chief Innovation Officer at the University of Cincinnati. He's also the architect of the Cincinnati Innovation District. How are you? I'm doing well, Dave. Good morning. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, Tell us what the Cincinnati Innovation District is. Well, it's all about one fundamental thing. It's about the attraction, retention, and growth of talent. You know, we live in an economy today where physical capital like landed buildings is no longer the constraint of people. And so communities like Cincinnati and greater Ohio are working aggressively to create environments where we can grow our talent. But we want to retain that here in Ohio, but we also want to attract uh, individuals to Ohio. We know that individuals are attracted to innovation from startups to Fortune 500 companies. But we also know that organizations are drawn to locations that have that talent. So in a very real way, we've built a place, a live, work, learn, and play environment where individuals and organizations can collaborate to solve problems that matter. And this was created in Cincinnati last year, and since then there are also innovation districts in Columbus and Cleveland this year. Yeah, we actually unveiled it a year ago, but we've been on this journey for four-plus years as a university, and candidly, there was a tremendous amount of work done by the city and a group called the Uptown Consortium to create the infrastructure to actually facilitate that work. But our journey started four years ago with something we call the 1819 Innovation Hub, which is an old Sears building that we renovated, where you have everything from startups to Fortune 500 businesses collaborating with the innovation assets, specifically the University of Cincinnati, to gain access to students, to research capability, as well as educational resources to help them solve problems and really create an environment where what I'd like to say is create a collision can occur. And then from that journey, we launched something called the Digital Futures Complex, which for for your listeners is another 400,000 square feet of space coming out of the ground right next to I-71 and MLK. you know, as we were, were building this, we needed to have a broader message to the nation and the world. So, you know, we unveiled the Cincinnati Innovation District with the leadership of the governor, lieutenant governor, and Jobs Ohio investing $100 million to really help us accelerate the talent here. And we're very proud of the fact that that now has become a model for the state, as you said, you know, with the announcement of Cleveland and the Cleveland Innovation District in January, as well as the Columbus Innovation District in February. And really as a state, really positions us well for the innovation economy. Now, it seems like uh, maybe 20 years ago, the Third Frontier Project began in Ohio. Is it similar to that, or how is it different? Well, the Ohio Third Frontier is very focused on creating a startup ecosystem within 
here, how do we ensure that they're economically strong and remain economically strong? And as I shared earlier, you know, we live in an economy today where people are the most valued resources. So those organizations need access to individuals that have the skills they need to remain competitive. And so they're co-locating to be near anchor institutions like the University of Cincinnati or in Columbus, Ohio State or Case Western in Cleveland to get access to those resources. And each one of these districts, uh, Cincinnati, Columbus, and Cleveland, have set a goal of 20,000 new jobs in 10 years. Is that right? It's exactly right. And we plan here in Cincinnati beyond the 20,000 jobs to have a local economic impact of about $3 billion a year. So it is a very purpose-built, intentional ecosystem that we're building here. And again, we're very proud of the fact that the state has adopted this model and has applied it because we think we're going to be stronger as a state than each individual city, but we also recognize that economic development and economic growth is done on a city-by-city basis. Talking with David Adams, he is the architect of the Cincinnati Innovation District. Do these three cities and and districts uh, clash with each other at all? Are you competing against each other, or might one hurt another in their development? No, not at all. In fact, I think the fact that we've taken a statewide approach to this is actually going to strengthen us as a state. You know, each city and each city throughout Ohio has its own unique capabilities in terms of the industries that are attracted to those particular communities. So one of the things that we're very fortunate about here in the state of Ohio is we have a large diversity of industries, which I think makes us stronger. So we're we're able to act independently relative to our own community, but we can work collaboratively as a state. And Dave, why that's so important is that as organizations are looking to expand their operations and get access to people. It's nice to know that in the state of Ohio, you've got multiple locations to choose from in order to get access to that talent. So we think it's a, it really provides us a competitive strength that you know, other states don't currently have. And candidly, we want to keep this a competitive advantage. You know, all of this uh, made me think of the proposal a few years ago from Amazon for a city to land its second headquarters. And all over the country, cities put their proposals together, and Columbus ended up being a finalist. And I'm wondering what your take was on that project that all these cities did and whether any good could still come from it, from a proposal like Columbus or wherever. Yeah, well, if you think about the number one thing that Amazon put right out there is they're looking for a place that has the people to support their business. It wasn't about, you know, building, you know, additional operations other than, you know, we need 50,000 new individuals to support our, our community. So getting back to this whole point about talent, and you saw that there were many cities that competed for that, uh, and you, you saw the cities that won, which are the traditional cities, um, the, the cities that uh, already thought about as talent hubs. Our innovation districts provide us an opportunity not only to communicate with and and to really energize the economics infusion of companies today, but what they really do for us is they provide us an opportunity to attract organizations and individuals who don't necessarily see the Midwest as a destination location. So think about the Cincinnati Innovation District or Cleveland Columbus as being these bright beacons where individuals and organizations can come in and actually see the kinds of innovation that's occurring within our community. 
So you've got this very robust ecosystem that, one, clearly illustrates a lot of startup activity, but also shows very clearly how we're helping mid-sized companies as well as Fortune 500 companies like Kroger, P&G, and many others. So if there's a, a large company not currently located in Ohio that you have your eye on, how do you approach them, or, or are they approaching you? How, how does that work? Well, actually, since we've announced the Cincinnati Innovation District, we're getting a lot of attention from organizations not in Ohio. And Microsoft is a partnership we announced in, in October, and traditionally the Midwest is not seen as a location where they might have a site, and they selected Cincinnati as a location where they're going to work with us and are working with us to upskill and reskill talent in our community. But, you know, Dave, it gets back to you've got to create that beacon and be intentional about communicating that message. And, and part of that message is with the Jobs Ohio investment to really help us accelerate our STEM grads by 15,000 our research capabilities by $2 billion over the next nine years, that really is a beacon also to those organizations that if you're looking for a place where you can quickly get access to the talent you need to support your organization, we now have places where you can locate to make that happen. Prior to having these innovation districts, it was candidly hard for these organizations outside Ohio to see how they could connect into our ecosystem. And candidly, we're taking a page right out of the playbooks of places like Silicon Valley, Boston, Atlanta, and others, but we're accelerating it. We're candidly doing in years what other communities have been doing for decades. So that gives us a real strong advantage as well as a state. You know, I, I remember reading not long ago, maybe in the last couple of years, about a data center that Facebook or Amazon, I, don't, I forget which one, was putting in central Ohio. And one of the reasons that it was attractive to them was the stability of the environment in terms of weather and things like that. We don't have wildfires or water shortages or droughts or hurricanes or tornadoes aren't that often you know, happening here. We really are stable compared to a lot of big cities around the country. You know, it's a great point in that, you know, we sit centrally that, you know, we can get to 80% of North America within a day's drive and provides us really a competitive advantage. It's one of the reasons why you see so many logistics firms here. But I'd also share that the diversity of industries that we have here is also a competitive advantage. If you think back to, you know, what happened to Detroit not too long ago, they had everything tied to one industry, and when that industry shifted, it created some real problems for them. You know, if you look at the Cincinnati landscape, we have everything from logistics companies here, but we have healthcare business here. We have retail, consumer goods, insurance companies, financial organizations. This diversity is a real strength. And one of the key platforms that rides underneath all of this is that every organization independent of the area you're in is experiencing digital transformation. And so as a university, we're able to support the needs of this diverse set of organizations. So you don't have to be, quote unquote, a software company to be in the digital economy. As the CEO Kroger likes to say, they're no longer a retail company that happens to be in digital. They're actually a digital company that just happens to be in retail. And again, we think, to your earlier point, 
that puts us in a really strong position because of our location, but as importantly, because of the diversity of the organizations that are here and candidly the ones we're going to attract here. What has the pandemic done in terms of uh, momentum on these projects? Well, I can share from, from you from our perspective when the pandemic, in fact, I think the governor, lieutenant governor, was the last public appearance uh, at the Cincinnati Innovation District prior to it occurring. Uh, it's only accelerated. You know, what's been interesting is we clearly went into somewhat of a lockdown mode, but we've signed five corporate partnerships during that period of time. We've also had thousands of interactions digitally with our corporate partners because the need to access and discuss with talent the ability to, you know, be employed by those organizations, it's not stopped. It's only accelerated. In fact, the number of student engagement we've had this past year is double what we had the previous year. And we just uh, had a 1,500% increase in the number of startups that have happened here as well. And this goes back over the last three years, but we didn't miss a beat. You know, we, we took advantage of the digital technology and I, I think we innovated. It provides us an opportunity to see how we can have both a physical environment, but have a digital environment as well. And we fully anticipate, Dave, that you know, post-pandemic, uh, this is only going to accelerate because we are not seeing the need for human capital for people decreasing. We only see it increasing. Do you see downtown areas returning to the resurgences that they were experiencing before the pandemic? You know, it's going to be interesting. I, I think at the end of the day, uh, as human beings, you know, we need to collide with one another. I do think there will be changes uh, that will occur. You know, people talk about hybrid environments. Um, you know, it's going to remain to be seen. I always say there's only two kinds of forecasts, lucky and lousy. And, uh, you know, as we look at this, you know, the ability to have those creative collisions in a an environment where we need ideas to be fostered and developed, those are going to continue to thrive. So I think uh, people will return you're already starting to see that in some of the bigger cities like New York, uh, where people are, you know, returning to these cities. You know, personally, I was in Chicago about three weeks ago. You wouldn't have known uh, that there was a pandemic in downtown Chicago, that the streets were just, you know, littered with individuals. And so I fully anticipate we're going to come back. How it's different, I think, remains to be seen. I know, again, for us, we took advantage of the situation because our corporate partner said, hey, we know we physically can't be with you, but we still want to collaborate. So we developed digital tools to help support that. And I do firmly believe coming out of this that the environment will be both a physical environment, but it'll also be a digital environment. It won't be one or the other. Talking with David Adams, he's the architect of the Cincinnati Innovation District. Uh, Just to kind of wrap up here, what should Ohioans be watching for over the coming years uh, in the development of these districts? standpoint, we should continue to see the acceleration of these places. I'm a firm believer that seeing is believing. And seeing physical locations where you know organizations, again, from startups to Fortune 500 companies are thriving uh, will be great additions to our communities. I think on a federal level, we're also starting to see some movement. There was a recent bill that got passed, the Innovation and Competition Act. It was a bipartisan bill that recognizes that, you know, we need to do two things. One, we need to increase and accelerate the amount of research development happening in our country. But as importantly, we need to accelerate 
the development of our so-called heartland city. You know, the country for a long time now has been growing disproportionate. And if you go back to my earlier comment that, you know, physical goods like, you know, land and buildings, I mean, land's hard to move or impossible to move. Buildings are difficult to move, but, you know, people can live wherever. And so there's a recognition at the federal level that we need to accelerate places like the Cincinnati Innovation District and the other innovation districts in Ohio. And the good news for us, Dave, is we've got a head start on this. We've been at this now for a number of years, and the state is really recognizing the power of this. So I believe this is going to give us a competitive advantage as we move forward as well. And uh, all Ohioans should be really excited about not only where we're at, but what the possibilities are for us as a state in the future. David, where can uh, folks find out more information about this? Yeah, we'd love to have people come see us. It's uh, Cincy, so C-I-N-C-Y-I-D.com. So check us out. And like I said, we'd love to. We're, we're back now. And uh, if people want to physically come do tours or you know, want to engage with us, uh, we'd love to talk to them. Great. Uh, anything else you'd like to add? No, just appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation with you today. And, you know, we recognize, as I shared earlier, it, it's all about people. And we're very focused as a university, as a city, on growing our own. But once we grow them, we want to keep them here. But as importantly, how do we attract other individuals to Ohio? And then also, as the seventh largest state in our nation, we want to continue to be a resource to continue to help individuals skill, reskill, upskill, you know, as we move and continue to move into the digital economy. David Adams, he's the Chief Innovation Officer at the University of Cincinnati and architect of the Cincinnati Innovation District. Thanks so much for the time and information today. Sure appreciate it. Thank you, Dave. Much appreciated. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. What is dedication? The thing that drives me every day as a dad is Dariana. We call him uh, Day Day for short. Every day he's hungry for something, whether it's attention, affection, knowledge. And there's this huge responsibility in making sure that when he's no longer under my wing, that he's a good person. I think the advice I would give is you don't need to know all the answers. The craziest thing was believing that your dad knew everything. So as a dad, you felt like you had to know everything. You had to get everything right. It's okay to make mistakes. As long as it's coming from love, then, you know, it kind of starts to work itself out. I want him to be able to sit back one day and go, we worked together, we did a good job. That's dedication. Find out more at fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Matthew. Huh? Oh, sorry. It's okay. I just need you to listen to me. I know that a lot of times, Mom, it might not seem like I'm listening to you, but I am. I hear you. And what you say really does matter to me. I mean, let's be honest. No kid likes rules, but I get why we have them. I hear you, and I know it's because you care. All the talks we've had over the years... 
including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No, thanks. I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thanks, Mom, for never giving up and always being my biggest fan. Thank you for letting me know what you expect so I can try to meet your expectations. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. The strength of our country hasn't just been won on the battlefield. It's won every day in our communities when we come together in our toughest times. For over 100 years, the American Legion has been strengthening communities across our nation by providing life-saving help and support to our veterans and neighbors during times like we're facing today. We are the American Legion, veterans strengthening America. To learn how you can help, visit legion.org. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV. Here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. America's headed into a summer dramatically different from last year's summer. A summer of freedom, a summer of joy, a summer of get-togethers and celebrations. An all-American summer that this country deserves. But to do that, health leaders say more people need to get vaccinated against COVID-19. See how Columbus could play a role in the president's month of action. Thank you so much for joining us today for Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. President Biden is pushing to get more people vaccinated against COVID-19. His goal is 70 percent of Americans by July 4th. 10TV's Olivia Eugenio explains how the president plans to get that done and what's happening right here on the local level to get people to roll up their sleeves. What'll it take for you to get vaccinated? A beer? A million dollars? How about a buzz or a cut? And I think it's a great opportunity for um, a lot of barbershops to get some exposure. Al Edmondson from A Cut Above the Rest is fully behind President Biden's idea to make barbershops vaccination sites. Absolutely. I'll be willing to open up the doors uh, with some stipulations. I think that one of the things that um, that's most that's very important is that um, being able to make sure that we're able to sanitize the uh, our shops once people leave. But that is just one of the ideas President Biden announced to get more Americans to roll up their sleeves. Possible we'll have vaccines at barbershops, baseball games, NASCAR races. Pharmacies will be open 24 hours a day and accepting walk-in appointments. Ben Wakana is part of the White House COVID-19 response team. The president is calling for a month of action full of incentives to inspire as many Americans as possible to get the vaccine. The CDC says about 63% of American adults are partially vaccinated. The president hopes to get that number to 70% by July 4th. And we are focused on going local, on getting vaccines into places that, that people go to. Places like a local barbershop. I tell people just get the shot. 
And again, that was Olivia Eugenia reporting. The Ohio State University is one of several universities across the country taking the president's college challenge. The goal there is to get campus communities vaccinated. Another week and another Vaximillion drawing. Two more lucky Ohioans won the $1 million prize, and that's college scholarship, respectively. Governor Mike DeWine talked with the winners, Zoe Vincent and Jonathan Carlisle. They were both thrilled with the news. It's just like really wild because it like came out of nowhere. We weren't really expecting it at all. And it was just like this super like big surprise. And we were all so excited about it. I can tell you, I did not sleep very much last night. Um, I was dreaming a lot about the future. Um, I know that me and my family would, um, we, we, we want to find our, our forever, our permanent home, uh, hopefully sometime in the near future. And uh, beyond that, just, I, I just want to have, someone helped me make this last. Uh, this is a good uh, foundation for my family. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. Well, the next winners will be announced next Wednesday evening at 729. You only need to sign up once. If you haven't done that yet, you have until midnight tonight. Not everyone is excited for that $1 million prize. Ohioans feel like it is a bribe on taxpayer dollars for, for Ohioans to get the vaccine. Some lawmakers are doing what they can to stop Vaximillion in its tracks. 10TV's Brittany Bailey takes a look at the legislation that could block the lottery. My district has a loud resounding voice. This is a frivolous use of taxpayer funding and that we want to do everything we can to stop the program. State Representative Jenna Powell introduced House Bill 329, otherwise known as the Taxpayer Protection Against the Frivolous Vaccine Lottery Act. So we drafted a piece of legislation to stop the current Vaximillion program and then ensure from here on out that no one else grossly misuses tax dollars through a Vaximillion lottery. So it ensures that taxpayer funding can't be spent in that way from this, this period forward. And she's not the only one lambasting the lottery from both sides of the aisle. Republican state rep Shane Wilkins said in a statement he was stunned, adding, while the restrictions implemented last summer unfairly hurt Ohio's small community businesses by picking winners and losers, this lottery is doing the exact same thing. And Democrat House Minority Leader Amelia Strong-Sykes said using millions of dollars in relief funds in a drawing is a grave misuse of money that could be going to respond to this ongoing crisis. Ohioans deserve better than this. I think that, you know, we've succeeded uh, and got a lot of people vaccinated quicker than they would have many people been vaccinated maybe weren't going to get it at all so what do the numbers show well health officials say there was a 28 percent jump in vaccines after the announcement but in recent weeks as you can see the seven-day moving average is still steadily declining clearly it's not going up as fast as it was are we leveled off or where are we we're not going to know for for a few days but uh, you know i think it's already been very very successful we're happy with with where it is. And state leaders say the publicity already has far outweighed the cost, amounting to more than $25 million that would have had to be spent on advertising for the same effect. We would rather see the money going toward the small business relief fund in our state um, or toward children's mental health. Those are two areas that we feel could uh, be helped very greatly uh, when it comes to funding from the federal government. For now, the money is still headed for more winners. Brittany Bailey, 10TV News. 
House Bill 329 still has to be assigned to a committee. However, it does have an emergency measure so that it would immediately take effect. The governor says he would veto the bill if it makes it to his desk. The majority of the pandemic health orders expired. Those include the closure of all K-12 schools, the stay-at-home order, social distancing, and mask mandates. Keep in mind, some cities still have those mandates in place for masks. With the health orders gone, the state's chief medical officer says it's now your responsibility to protect yourself against COVID-19. Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff says that means getting vaccinated. However, children 11 and younger are still not able to get vaccinated against COVID-19. Until then, Dr. Patty Manning, Courtney at Cincinnati Children's Hospital says your child may still have to wear a mask in public areas. We are one variant away from COVID being more serious in children. Uh, there's no way to predict that the next variant, which will develop if disease is swirling around, that that variant couldn't be more harmful to children. We have a handful of children with COVID in our hospital, including today. And the thing that you can do to protect those children who can't be protected is you can get protection, you can get vaccinated. That's the number one thing you can do. If you don't get COVID, if your chance of getting COVID is greatly reduced, you won't transmit it to children who are vulnerable. And some of those children who are vulnerable have other illnesses. They have cancer, they have organ transplants, they have chronic diseases, and we wanna keep them safe. Um, you can also practice the safe practices that we wanna encourage. If you're not vaccinated, you can wear a mask. If you have a child who can't be vaccinated, we would encourage you to wear a mask because it seems sort of unfair to have children wearing masks, but have the adults in their lives not wearing masks. You can practice good hand hygiene. You can avoid crowds. You can practice social distancing. You can do the things that we've talked about all along to keep those children in your lives safe. Dr. Vanderhoff also called the safety and effectiveness of the vaccines remarkable. On the day health orders were lifted, some Republican leaders decided to burn masks. Ohio Senate candidate Josh Mandel posted video of himself in a stairwell burning a mask with a lighter. Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost put on more of a production, setting his mask on fire with lighter fluid and a match while Jimi Hendrix's song Fire played. Yost is one of millions of Ohioans who were, in fact, diagnosed with COVID-19 in the pandemic. 10TV's Kevin Landers takes a look back at how masks became a way of life. On March 14th, Columbus reports its first case of COVID-19. Four days later... We are not at the mercy of this virus. Columbus Mayor Andrew Ginther, along with Columbus Public Health Commissioner Mashika Roberts, declare a public health emergency. This is not being overblown by the media. This is a real pandemic. By March 20th, Ohio recorded its first COVID-19 death. And so to my fellow Ohioans, for a while it's going to seem like we are in fact living in the valley of death. Two days later, on March 22nd, Governor Mike DeWine declares a statewide stay-at-home order. This is a very dicey time. This is a very uh, cr crucial time. On April 27th, DeWine issues a statewide mask mandate for customers and employees under his reopening plan. But in a move that would spark one of many controversial decisions, DeWine changes course. 24 hours later, he explains his mask reversal. People who are shopping, uh, going into a retail uh, business uh, is offensive uh, to some of our fellow Ohioans. I've heard you, 
and uh, we're not going to mandate this. 65 days later, on July 2nd, Columbus Mayor Andrew Ginther signs an executive order mandating masks in public. I know we are fatigued from months of fighting the spread of COVID-19, but we cannot, cannot let up now. That order went into effect on July 7th. The next day, Governor DeWine orders mass coverings in public in seven counties, where exposure to the virus is considered very high. On July 23rd, 86 days after reversing his course on a statewide mask mandate, DeWine issues his mandatory mask order. 344 days later, on June 2nd of 2021, state health orders are lifted and masks are no longer required. Kevin Landers, 10TV News. You're going to notice that we've said most health orders are being dropped. Not all. You'll still need to wear a mask in jails and prisons, assisted living facilities, adult daycare centers, and in local hospitals. Also, on public transportation. That includes buses and planes. Governor DeWine signed new legislation to provide more than $960 million in federal funding to schools, the National Guard, and Department of Health. Most of the funding will be used for education purposes in response to the pandemic. Schools will be able to use the funding in a variety of ways that include providing after-school programming, upgrading their HVAC systems, transportation, and expanding mental health services. Here's the governor with the breakdown of funding for public and private schools. $632.4 million will be sent to Ohio's public schools and 154. million will be sent to Ohio's private schools, all for the benefit of our kids. Summer slide is a real thing. And so I'm excited about the fact that schools will be able to use this money to provide extended school year services. And uh, and so you made made mention of the fact that students. Students come from a variety of needs, mental health needs, and so those have to be addressed during the day. But when that happens, you're taking students out of class. And so uh, giving money to schools to provide an extended school day, that's very important because uh, there's so many needs that need to be met. And and so it's it's tough to take uh, kids that are behind. They need something extra. Some of the money will also go to the National Guard to help with vaccine distribution. The governor says more than 900 members have helped the state's COVID-19 response over the course of the pandemic with clinical needs and more, including help with food distribution. First responders could get a $1,000 bonus for work done during the pandemic. It's part of a bill introduced by state representatives Craig Riedel and Phil Summer. Under the bill, the money would go to police officers, firefighters, sheriff's deputies, jail officers, and EMTs. Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost. Law enforcement had its deadliest year in the line of duty ever last year. The leading cause of death was COVID-19 because... Most of the things that the rest of us tried to rely on to get us through the pandemic weren't available to people that are on the job. Uh, If you're a police officer, if you're a firefighter, you can't work from home. You can't socially distance. Uh, You have to show up and deal with the facts as they are in an uncontrolled environment. Now, to qualify for the money, you must have worked since March of last year part-time first responders would qualify for $500. 
The governor's race won't happen until late next year, but more candidates are jumping in the race. Find out who announced that they are going for Mike DeWine's job. Plus, another candidate takes aim at the current governor and corruption in the state. You will hear from Dayton Mayor Nan Whaley's harsh words for DeWine. Ohioans wishing to put on their own fireworks displays might soon be in luck. A new bill would allow you to do just that. It does come with a few exceptions. We have those next. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. How do you know if you or a loved one is at risk of problem gambling? By knowing the signs, such as borrowing money, hiding unpaid debts, bragging about wins, or just plain irritability. Sound familiar? Get Set Before You Bet is Ohio's initiative to help keep gambling safe and responsible for everyone. How does it work? Just visit BeforeYouBet.org to learn more and take the responsible gambling quiz. Together, we can keep gambling safe and responsible in Ohio. This message brought to you by Ohio for Responsible Gambling. Before I was adopted, I felt like nobody wanted me. I felt like my life was already over. At a certain age, they don't want you. You're troubled and stuff. Even if I wanted to be adopted, who would adopt a 17-year-old? Inside, I knew, like, I'm not a troubled kid. I know what I'm in for, why I'm here. My biggest fear was that I would age out and not know how to be sufficient on my own. I had nightmares every single day at my birth mom's house. It was just really scary for me living there. I was scared. I was lost and I felt hopeless. I felt like, don't I deserve to feel happy and loved? I just wish I'd gotten adopted sooner. Unfortunately, the number of children waiting to be adopted from foster care is on the rise. The Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption is the only public nonprofit charity in the U.S. focused exclusively on foster care adoption. You can help. Go to DaveThomasFoundation.org to learn more. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. The 4th of July is quickly approaching, and Ohio is one step closer to easing fireworks restrictions across the state. Lawmakers are taking another crack at a bill that would change state law. Carla Byron from our sister station in Toledo took a closer look at how it would work. Right now, novelty fireworks can be sold and used in Ohio. Basically anything that goes snap, crackle, or pop, including sparklers. If signed into law, Senate Bill 113 would allow people to buy and use 1.4G fireworks before, during, and after around 15 holidays of the year. And that's a big concern for health and safety advocates. When discharge is legalized, people tend to think that it's safe. If it's legal, it's safe. And that is certainly not the case um, at all. There's no safe way that our fire officials and our insurance organizations and our medical organizations say there is no safe way to use a dangerous product like a firework. State Senators Terry Johnson and Michael Rooley, who introduced the bill, say it will loosen firework restrictions while ensuring Ohioans have the necessary information and tools to safely discharge them. That information would be available as a safety pamphlet and tools such as safety glasses, which all firework retailers must offer to their customers. The bill also establishes a committee to advise the state fire marshal on rulemaking for firework usage, sale, manufacturing, and wholesaler licensing. The bill may be further amended before moving to the governor's desk. 
Parla Byron, WTOL 11. The bill would also create an Ohio Fire Code Rule Recommendation Committee to review changes to the state fireworks law and impose a 4% fee on purchases of consumer fireworks to pay for firefighter training programs. Candidate for Governor Nan Whaley now has the backing of 23 current Ohio state reps and senators. The endorsements came the same week she released a plan to fight corruption in Ohio government. Dayton Mayor Whaley pointed to the House Bill 6 scandal and CoinGate saying these schemes cost money and make them lose trust in elected leaders. She laid out a plan that includes creating a public accountability commission to investigate corruption and work with lawmakers to close those dark money loopholes. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. To truly take on corruption and pay-to-play politics, we must dramatically increase transparency and bring in real public oversight. The Ohio Republican Party responded to Whaley's plan, saying her press conference launched, quote, cherry-picked partisan attacks and that Mayor Whaley should work on fixing the culture of corruption in Dayton City Hall. Again, comments from the Ohio Republican Party. Whaley is not the only one running against Governor Mike DeWine on the Democratic side, along with Whaley. Mayor of Cincinnati John Cranley announced that he is going to run during a call this week with USA Today Network Ohio Bureau. The governor's race will happen in November of 2022. Mark your calendars so you can expect the candidate pool to grow, of course, in that time. Senator Rob Portman visited the National Veterans Memorial and Museum on Memorial Memorial Day. And he said, we as a country have never had freedom without bravery. Portman talked with us after the ceremony about that attack on the nation's capital on January 6th. And he told us why he wants a commission to investigate. I supported the effort to move forward on that only with the understanding that it was going to be nonpartisan. It wasn't going to be a Democrat commission. It wasn't going to be a Republican commission. It was going to be an American commission. Senator Portman says he wants the American people to know how we can avoid that kind of thing in the future and not to forget what makes our country great and our veterans who made it possible, especially on Memorial Day. The city of Columbus now knows the name of its next police chief. Up next, you'll hear her plans to tackle that record-breaking violence we're seeing in the capital city. This is my new best friend, Esther. She might look like any normal, playful puppy, but Esther's being raised to become a canine companions for independence assistance dog for a person with a disability. To get there, she needs lots of loving care and attention, plenty of exercise, and good eating habits so that she can live a long and healthy life for her future family. And she needs to spend tons of time socializing, learning basic commands like sit and stay, and taken to fun places with lots of distractions so that she can learn to cope in every situation. All of this will prepare Esther for more professional training to become a real assistance dog and a life helping a person with a disability to live more independently. Are you ready to open your heart and home for 18 months to a puppy like Esther? To find out more about becoming a canine companion for Independence Puppy Raiser or about other volunteer opportunities, visit cci.org or call 1-800-572-BARK. Raise a puppy, change a life. You can make a world of difference in the life of a person with a disability. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. 
My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I want to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. The thought of my sons growing up without me inspired me to quit smoking. I talked to my doctors, and then I threw away all my cigarettes, ashtrays, and lighters. I started exercising instead of smoking. Getting support from friends online kept me on track. Staying away from alcohol when I was first quitting was key. Instead of smoking after I ate, I'd get up and take a walk. I missed having a cigarette in my hand, so I'd hold a pen or a straw, anything. Until I knew I wouldn't give in to temptation, I spent more time with my friends who didn't smoke. I went to places that were smoke-free. I didn't stay quit the very first time I tried. I kept on trying, and I learned something each time. Do whatever it takes. No matter how many times it takes. I quit. I quit. I quit. We did it. So can you. You can quit. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and CDC. I'm Major League Shortstop D. Rigors. While I might not play for your favorite baseball team, when it comes to fighting treatments for COVID-19, we're all on the same team. One important treatment that you may not know about is antibody-rich plasma. Being tested locally in a critical trial organized by John Hopkins University at covidplasmatrial.org. My favorite part of baseball season is getting to meet the fans and hear the roar of the crowd. At covidplasmatrial.org, you can show that this 100-year-old treatment option is safe and effective against COVID-19. It could be the key to getting us back to normal. And for those like me who have chronic conditions, it could be life-saving. Wow. If you have recently been exposed to or diagnosed with COVID-19, step up to the plate and go to covidplasmatrial.org to enroll. covidplasmatrial.org. Let's knock it out of the park. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. Ohio lawmakers are calling for an investigation into Micaiah Bryant's death. The 16-year-old was shot to death by Columbus police officer Nicholas Reardon in front of her foster home back in April. Reardon shot Bryant after he saw her lunge at a woman with a knife. He has not been charged with anything. Senator Sherrod Brown and Congresswoman Joyce Beatty want the Department of Health and Human Services to investigate the foster care system and the events that led to Micaiah's death. No word yet on whether the HHS is in fact going to take up that case, so we'll monitor that. There is a new leader of the Columbus Division of Police. Mayor Andrew Ginther introduced Elaine Bryant as the new head of the CPD. 10TV's Lacey Crisp was at the announcement and spoke with the new chief. Elaine Bryant will be the first of many things. She'll be the first outsider to become chief. She will also be the first black woman to lead the division. I will not lead this division with fear. Because in the words of one of the most influential leaders and mentors that I've had, 
cops count and leadership matters. Setting the tone for her leadership style, Detroit Deputy Police Chief Elaine Bryant has been named the new chief of the Columbus Division of Police. She says she already knows building trust, both from officers and community members, is going to be her biggest challenge. I'm going to try to hit every precinct, every zone. I want to meet with them. I want to talk to them. I want to go to roll calls. I want to get to know the community. There's so much I want to do. She says she knows morale is an issue amongst officers. Have the officers know that I'm here to support them. And admits she's alarmed by the violent crime rate in the city. You want to get it on the front end. So I think prevention is key. You know, when you do your analysis and you look at the data and you figure out where the crime is happening, what's occurring, you want to try to get ahead of it. You don't want to chase it. Brian served in several different positions in her 21 years in Detroit, from patrol to homicide, and also worked on getting the department up to date under its federal consent decree, something Mayor Andrew Ginther argued is important for Columbus. I believe that we need the federal government's help, and that's why we invited them in uh, to take a look at things. Uh, I believe the Department of Justice will be involved with the Columbus Division of Police uh, sooner rather than later. Surrounded by her mother and aunt, Brian says she's looking forward to getting to work in Columbus. I want to become a part of this community, so if I'm moving to Ohio, I'm moving to Ohio. And Brian does not have a start date in mind just yet. Interim Chief Mike Woods will stay on for now. In Columbus, Lacey Crisp, 10 TV News. Bryant will have to become Ohio Peace Officer Training Academy certified. She will not be able to wear a uniform or carry a gun until she does. She has one year to complete that certification. We thank you all for joining us here today. Remember, if it affects you, your family, and Ohio, we're here to make sure those accountable face the state. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me from the Washington, D.C. area is Brooks Kenny. She's the executive director of Us Against Alzheimer's. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, some big news on the Alzheimer's front. Uh, tell us what's going on. Absolutely. I mean, this is probably one of the most exciting days uh, in, in Alzheimer's. The first disease-slowing drug has been approved. Uh, for the earliest stages of Alzheimer's by the FDA uh, on June 7th. And this is really the first disease-modifying treatment that has been approved in 20 years. So it's a huge day for the Alzheimer's movement, for patients, for advocates, for science. This has been quite a roller coaster because there have been a lot of clinical trials over just the last few years that have looked very promising and then in the end have not come through. Yeah, that's right, Dave. I mean, this is a complex disease, and although I certainly don't, uh, I'm not a scientist, I, I represent our patient advocacy organization, but we have really been watching this movement and trying to encourage more and more research, and this is a complex disease, and every breakthrough means more positive steps forward for future treatment. So we hope this is really just the beginning um, of, of the, the effort 
expert here and more drugs will follow. This is going to spur innovation and it's just an exciting day. You know, Alzheimer's has been just, there's been so much stigma, there's been so much silence and we're finally in the spotlight and hopefully this is going to spur even more innovation for patients and their families. Do you have any information about Alzheimer's in Ohio or nationwide? Absolutely. Well, you know, there are 6.2 million Americans living with Alzheimer's disease and 16 million caregivers nationwide. In Ohio, there are about 220,000 people age 65 and older living with Alzheimer's disease. And we know that about 11% of people aged 45 and older in Ohio have subjective cognitive decline. And there are about 440,000 family caregivers who are caring for loved ones in Ohio with Alzheimer's disease. And let me make sure I make it clear, caregiving in Alzheimer's is a big task. It's a big job. The caregiving goes on for many years. And most folks don't really know what to expect. We're so familiar with many other chronic diseases like cancer and what is part of that journey. Alzheimer's disease is well understood in terms of people understand that this is a disease, but they don't always know what to expect. They don't always know how to prepare their family, um, where, where a loved one might live to ensure they're safe, when to have those hard conversations about safety for driving, medication management. It is a very complex disease to manage for a family, which is why at Us Against Alzheimer's, we are very focused on getting people detected earlier. 60% of cases go unrecognized in Alzheimer's disease. I mean, think about that for a minute. If 60% of cancer cases were not diagnosed ever or diagnosed in stage three or four, the patient advocacy community would be up in arms, right? And so we feel like now is the time to make a dent in the growing number of people each year who are diagnosed with Alzheimer's and get people into these conversations earlier, get them talking with family members, get them talking with their providers when they notice memory changes, because we want people to have the best possible chance at treatment. And this disease, because of the size of the baby boomer generation, if it's not defeated, it's going to be just that much more of a problem in another 10 years. Absolutely. Alzheimer's disease really could cripple our country from a healthcare perspective as well as um, just when you think about the financial burden. We don't have enough caregivers to care for aging adults, and we certainly don't have the infrastructure in place in our healthcare system. Now, age is the number one risk factor for Alzheimer's, but it's important for your listeners to know that it's not a normal part of aging. You know, changes in memory and changes in thinking may be something related to dementia or Alzheimer's, but it could be other factors too. You know, when we think about the burden of this disease, it's also important to note that African Americans are two to three times more likely to develop Alzheimer's. And by the year 2030, 40% of all cases will be black or brown Americans. Women are twice as likely to have the disease than men. So, you know, this is this is a looming problem, which is why the approval of aducanumab by the FDA is, is a bright spot in this movement, because it's going to help spark these conversations so people can start paying attention to their memory and get support they need much sooner. Talking with Brooks Kenny, she's the executive director of Us Against Alzheimer's. So the news about this drug for folks who have a loved one with Alzheimer's, how excited or reserved should they be about this? Well, this drug and treatment is not perfect for everyone, right? It really focuses on the early 
earliest stages of the disease, those people with mild cognitive impairment. And so what we actually hear at Us Against Alzheimer's, we knew it was important to provide education and resources to the Alzheimer's community, which is why we created a new platform called Brain Guide, which can be accessed by visiting mybrainguide.org or by calling 855 Brain 411. Brain Guide is a simple, easy to use platform that allows people to take a memory questionnaire. They can take a questionnaire for themselves or a loved one, and based on the answers that are provided, we curate specific content to help them on the next step in their journey. So let's say someone takes a memory questionnaire for themselves and they they have some trouble, you know, uh, remembering the words in the questionnaire and, and responding to the questions. We'll actually give you tailored resources on, maybe it's time you check in with your doctor. Here's what you need to bring. Here's what you should be prepared to ask. Here's how you're gonna spark that conversation. We also have access to local resources for people that are coping with Alzheimer's as well as caregivers. So, you know, we want to spark these conversations. I think the approval of this treatment should give a lot of people hope. Certainly it's not gonna be available for everyone. Estimates are about 1.5 million people would, uh, this would be an appropriate treatment for them. But other folks can still find more resources and they can still, get into conversations with their provider to get the support they need. So we're really hoping this is going to be a major paradigm shift in the movement. So I encourage people to use this news as a jumping off point to start having those conversations. Talk to your parents if you're worried. Put a plan in place. These are are conversations, Dave, that have not been happening historically and we need to shift that. And mybrainguide.org can help and give you tools and ideas on how to start those conversations. And I guess the hope with this drug is if it works even just a little bit, maybe it'll give researchers a, a clue and a key to how to go forward with something better. Absolutely. You know, any innovation, look at cancer. You know, every cancer disease, you know, you learn from watching uh, treatments go forward and, and you learn. And this is really critical in Alzheimer's disease. I mean, this is a first-in-class drug. But in order for us to have a best-in-class drug, we need to we need to get it into the market and see how it is impacting patients and families. And we need to share data so that we can spur more and more innovation, so that patients and families can have the best quality of life. You know, people often said to us in the early days, "Well, why would you even want a diagnosis if there's no hope?" Well, now there is hope. But I'll tell you another reason why you want an early diagnosis. You want an early diagnosis so your family is not in chaos. I can't tell you how many stories I hear over and over again about someone being diagnosed because they had a fall, because mom took the car and got lost, and you get a phone call from the police. This is not the way we want to manage Alzheimer's disease and cognitive decline. We want people to be thinking about their memory and their brains just like they think about their heart health, right? And we want people talking about changes so that a plan can be put in place. We have wonderful patient advocates that tell beautiful stories of their experience having an early diagnosis. And guess what? They're thriving. They've gotten their healthcare uh, paperwork in order. They've gotten their financial paperwork in order. They're living within a community where they have Court. You know, this is possible for us to have a better quality of life with an early diagnosis in Alzheimer's disease. So I encourage people to check out mybrainguide.org, 
uh, spark these conversations with loved ones. Now is the time so that we can really experience the best quality of life as we get into our older years. Brooks Kenny again. She's the executive director of Us Against Alzheimer's. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having me, Dave. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.